This is Pursuit of Spark. I'm Julie Burstein. At the beginning of the last century, the French poet, filmmaker, and artist Jean Cocteau said, What others reproach you for, cultivate. It is yourself. My mom kept that quote on her desk for many years, and it would find itself comfortable on the desk of Ed Zimmerman, a deal lawyer who was the first person to come talk with me after I spoke at the TED conference this year. Ed told me he completely related to the major mishap that was at the center of my talk. And when Ted puts the talk up online, you'll see that all didn't go as planned, but it went in ways that was exactly right. Ed told me a little bit about his work, putting together deals for tech companies, and he invited me to one of the gatherings that he and his firm hold, sometimes for hundreds of entrepreneurs and investors to get to know each other. I was curious about the work he does, and in our conversation, he reveals that one of his greatest influences was his father, for unexpected reasons. Ed also talks about how he stayed at the same law firm for more than 20 years, in large part because it's a place where he's been able to innovate, and also a place where there's an understanding that there's life beyond the office. When I went to talk to him at his law firm's offices in New Jersey, I found Ed outside talking on his cell phone, wearing jeans and a fleece jacket, looking more like one of the tech entrepreneurs he represents than the lawyers inside. I noted that he has an informal style, both as a host and panel moderator, where he's full of good humor and sets everyone at ease, and also here, sitting in his office. I'm offended that you've pegged me with informality. <laughs> as you sit here in your fleece and your blue jeans in a law office. So, um, yeah. brown jeans. Right. Okay, and your those are great sneakers. What are those? <laughs> they're... Oh, they're Nikes. They're, yeah, I, I did a speaking gig in Portland, and I got to run amok in the Nike company store for an hour, only an hour. And they actually, I don't know if you have been to the Nike company store. You're only allowed to, if, if you get invited, you're allowed to go once a year and they take your driver's license and like write down and your time, you know, like it's, it's a big deal. And I mean, is it like those old TV shows where they give you a shopping cart and you could put as much in it in the course of an hour as, um, kind of, <laughs> and my my wife and kids do not like them, and that actually is a good thing. What can you describe them? Mostly black, red stripe around the bottom, orange. I would call this like a neon blue, including the, are they called? Sort of turquoise. The, Tur and, oh, turquoise, and yeah. And the sole is turquoise, too, with like a neon lemon citron I think they'd call it a neon citron swoosh on the bottom. Uh, yeah so what I would say is that they're loud and obnoxious and not supposed to be worn by a 40 something early 40s year old deal lawyer it's you know as I met you as we walked in I thought this is not what I would expect a lawyer to be wearing into his office which is great and maybe that's also the informality of the panels is part of having been plagued by being a pattern interrupt for years. I've come in, uh, in, la in later years to embrace being a pattern interrupt. I love that. And I wonder what is the difference? Actually, can you describe what you mean by pattern interrupt? Because I think for many people, they're not quite sure what that means. People have expectations and something is going to unfold a certain way or someone is going to behave a certain way or because someone is from Brooklyn or is a partner in a law firm or is Jewish or is Hispanic or whatever it is, then things will flow from that almost without any deviation. and. I like the idea of breaking stuff, and I like the idea of, I think in my, certainly as a teenager, I did not have the most fabulous, wonderful time in school or socially, and at some point, there's this great concept in To Kill a Mockingbird about being comfortable in your own skin, and in 
maybe in my late 20s or 30s, I started realizing that the comments that I got that were negative feedback from employers or whoever were things that were likely to be largely immutable at that point. And so I said, okay, how do I make them work for me if I can't change them? And so for instance, my first year reviews when I was teaching venture capital at Columbia Business School, people complained. So I had some students who were thrilled with the class and then I had some students who complained there wasn't enough teaching of formulas and I don't know how to spreadsheet evaluation model. My response, by the way, is that there is no spreadsheet valuation model for a pre-revenue internet company. It's art or guesswork or knowing the market. And a, a, a spreadsheet is also art or guesswork or knowing the market. It's just put down correct. in those little blocks. They wanted a toolkit. Mm. And so I, what I could have done is I could have said, okay, next year I'm going to give these students a toolkit. And instead I changed the course description. And the first line of the course description said, love math, question mark. Don't, don't take, take this, this course. <laughs> we won't give you a toolkit because we don't have one. And people had also asked for more healthcare deal case studies. And so I put in, you know, this is going to be tinker toy internet companies um, and software companies. And if you want something else, there are other venture capital classes taught. And so I got a different set of students. They, they liked the class a lot. And I've been teaching there for more than half a dozen years. What's fascinating, Ed, is you've embraced what's different about you, which is such a hard thing to do, A, as a teenager. Oh, what gave you the chutzpah to say, you know what? These things are immutable. And I'd be interested if you have a story about like a particular thing as a teenager that you said, all right, this is me, and I'm just going to have to figure out how to make this as an, an advantage, not a disadvantage. Gosh, do I have one of those as a teenager, or were they all disadvantages as a teenager? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, it, yeah, maybe it was a disadvantage as a teenager that became an advantage as a, as a I don't know whether I could say grown-up, but as in, in the rest of your life. Uh, I think one thing that has been constant, and you look at things in the rearview mirror and learn things about yourself. Someone was talking to me about the fact that I founded a bunch of different organizations or groups. And if you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world that in the early 20th century, sociology and anthropology were really begun by people who were misfits. They wanted to understand the society into which they failed to integrate. And so I've founded organizations or groups because I was tired of not getting in. So I think that I started a philosophy club in high school. Um, that was, I started a special interest gaming group to play Dungeons and Dragons when I was about 10 years old in some organism, some geeky organization, mostly for adults that I, uh, my parents let me join uh, when I was a kid. I started stuff so that I could belong because I couldn't belong if I didn't start it. And to this day, yesterday I went to a big conference and it was a fabulous networking opportunity. And you've now seen me in a room with a hundred people and I'm okay in that room because I've invited people and they're coming to my house. I go to a conference like that and my first impulse is I want to leave because I know that socially I'm not terrific. What's interesting, I'll have to send you the link. Um, I work with a leadership coach. He's part of this website that I've put together. His name is Dick Nodell. And what we discussed this week is a story that a friend of mine who is a very successful young um, entrepreneur told me about how she was at one of these meetings with all of the other um, all of the other entrepreneurs that this particular VC was was funding. And she was one of like 17 women and 250 men. 
And at one point, she was standing with her back sort of towards a group of men, and one man turned around and handed her a glass and said, could you get me another glass of white, please? Wow. The guy thought that she was a waitress. And she also said, I, you know, these sorts of events are really difficult. And what Dick said, which I thought was wonderful, is, A, she just took the glass and walked away. I mean, she didn't get him another glass of white. He said, you know, it's like you, pattern disruption this was a pattern that this other guy had of this woman and that if she had been able to kind of say, oh, it's so funny that you think I'm a waitress because I run X, Y, Z. And then the guy would have kind of gone, oh, and that would have been, because of that disruption, a moment to have a genuine interaction. Sure. And the other thing that Dick said is go in with a role, which is something that I was thinking about from my experience at TED, because I'm like you. At TED, it was like, once I did my talk, it was like, what do I do now? <laughs> and so it is, it's, it's, um, and so you figured that out. You've created the role for yourself as host. I, I guess so, but, and it's interesting about her observation. I'll tell you two quick stories. One is it's only in the last couple of years that I've been able to go up at, in a conference to go up to a woman and start a conversation with her because I was so used to feeling awkward around women in particular um, that I didn't want to send a mixed message or I didn't. So it was harder for me. And now I almost feel like it's easier for me to have a conversation. I work with so many women entrepreneurs. I'm an investor in companies run by so many women entrepreneurs. Thematically, it's where I want to invest for a whole host of reasons. So it's kind of interesting because I don't think I would ever make that mistake of handing the of, of handing the drink um, I feel like I'd be on the other side of a deficit in that social dynamic but when I was a first-year lawyer and I went to the first couple of working group meetings for an IPO I had no idea what was going on in the room and the senior partner was sitting at the big table with all the grown-ups and I was sitting on the periphery. In, at the kids' table. <laughs> exactly. And he would occasionally look back at me and wave his hand as if he were holding a pen and that meant take copious notes. Well, I had no idea what I was doing. So having been a sociology and anthropology major in college, what I spent my time doing was I would go around the room and say, how many white guys are in this room out of how many people? How many dark blue suits? How many pinstripe suits? How many dark gray suits? Is there anyone not wearing a dark blue or dark gray suit in this room? Are there any women in this room? And I would just tally up the stats. And usually in a room of 23 people, there'd be 21. And that's about how big these rooms are. There'd be 21 white guys. In their blue suits. And, their... and most of them would be in dark gray suits. And I, it was a reality, and it made me a little uncomfortable. One of the things that I like about the, the social situation that I'm in professionally is that it's so much more diverse than that. It's so much more interesting, and I'm so much more comfortable being in that mix. And I don't want to wear a dark blue suit. Or a great one, either. Is pattern disruption something from sociology and anthropology? Is that term something that comes out of that world or more out of... A, I wish I had read sociology or anthropology in the last 20 years and could speak intelligently about it. <laughs> B, I don't think so. I'm not sure where I picked it up along the way, but I've certainly overused it since picking it up. I wanted to ask you about that idea of, it sounds like you look for patterns also, the way that you're talking about the way you looked at this world. Is that something that's useful for you in the kind of work that you do? It's hugely useful, and you look for patterns if you're not a good doodler. So if I had been a good doodler, <laughs> I would never have stooped to counting white guys. Um, I think... Because your your boss was asking you to take notes and you had to be writing something. I had something to be writing down. something. Well, but I was also I was also it was going everything was going over my head and and I was paying attention and I had to be, you know, looking. And then there's the whole ADD thing. But so, that's interesting and I actually I have 
I have a son. Actually, I told you, my son is looking at colleges. One thing I have to help him with is he doesn't do boredom very well. And the um, information session, it's like he needs to learn how to doodle or look for patterns because he needs something to help him look like he's paying attention. And he is paying attention, but if he's bored, forget it. He's just, he's out of there. And so that's really interesting. Song lyrics and math. <laughs> is that what you used? It's I all the time. Song lyrics and math. Okay, so what song lyric is going through your head right now? Uh, or maybe not. Right, <laughs> I hope right, not. Right, right now, nothing. <laughs> when something occurs to you, let us know <laughs> what it is. I, I, I will. Although that, my father used to say, don't think of pink elephants, and then... Of course, yeah. Right. So I'm picturing you in your first year out of law school in this meeting with IPS. Did that lead you to the kind of work that you're doing now? At... at when I left school, I there were numerous classes that I blew off in law school. Not that law school wasn't a fun place, uh, because I I had a great time in much of law school, and every finals week in law school, I would reward myself for any sort of studying that I did by saying, and I did this in college as well, an hour of studying for school an hour, maybe half an hour of studying for me. And so I would learn different topics that interested me at the at the time. And it could be like watching all of the films of Kurosawa was learning for me. It could be studio ceramic art, which I found really interesting, or understanding something else that I had. Um, at one point, I tried to teach myself guitar during finals week, and it is a miserable failure. But... Uh, when I got out of school, I never expected to be a workaholic because most things pointed to the fact that I wasn't. Cut a lot of classes in high school as well, for instance. So four years, five years into working here, I realized that I was enormously addicted to doing work. And I stopped and said, okay, if I'm going to be working this hard, I really need to drive my own path in life. What have I enjoyed the most? What do I think is the most interesting place for me to park myself? And it's interesting that I chose park because that involves being stationary, which I don't feel I am and I don't feel I want to be. And I remembered... When I was a kid, I read a lot of Hemingway, and I loved Hemingway. And my son has now read a bunch of Hemingway and, and enjoys it, and that makes me kind of happy, and I haven't read it in years except with my son. But Hemingway talked about advice that Gertrude Stein had given him about buying artists, and he said that she had said, buy artists your own age if you want to start young and they'll mature with you as your taste matures and as your wallet hopefully matures. And that was advice that my then girlfriend, now wife, and I also adopted as we were buying a $50 drawing in college, right? We've been together since we're 18. And it's been really cool to reflect on artwork that we've purchased together and the, the way we've made decisions and the few pieces that we really regret not having stretched to buy years ago that we still are sort of pissed off that we, you know. So it's nice to look at a relationship that way. And I think with work, I did the same thing and said, who would actually be dumb enough to hire me? And it was whether they get the advice from Gertrude through Hemingway or not, people my own age because they wouldn't know better and where have I had the most fun what have I found the most exciting which people seem the most interesting and all roads led to Rome so I decided that that's what I wanted to do I had discussions with my partner my, my now partner then my colleague we were two associates Anthony Pergola and um, he sort of decided to throw in with me and he would get in his reviews, stop working with Zimmerman, you need to work with partners, not a senior associate. And he did a little of a little less with me and and but not much less, not less enough. 
And then over time, it was keep working with Zimmerman. That's a good idea. <laughs> and so we've had this. Um, he likes to say that we've been friends for 16 years, but not consecutively. <laughs> so you said you wanted to work with people your own age. Mm-hmm. Did And it's interesting because you've got two different threads here, which is the, I love that Gertrude Stein advice, which is choose work by people who are your own age because you'll grow together. Um, and by the way, I believe that's in Movable Feast, and I really hope that that's, that that actually exists and that it was actually Hemingway quoting Stein. <laughs> I'll go and look for the attribution and then... Please but, don't. <laughs> but if not, you can say it's it's just, it's great advice regardless of who said it to whom. But um, you then said, you know, looking for people who were dumb enough to hire you, which is a different thing because you, it sounds like you you had a good sense of what you could bring to the table too with these with these people who were your age. I felt like I had worked a year and a half every year. Mm. And I felt like I was getting great responsibility, great responsibility and great deal flow. And when I talked with my friends from law school, so one of my friends worked at Dewey Ballantyne, which is much in the news these days. And she spent her entire first year answering questions posed on the phone by angry creditors on one bankruptcy matter. And what I did in my first year was so much more varied and so much more educational that I did feel like I had gotten a different set of skills than a number of my peers who were at these massive firms. Even going to Lowenstein was a pattern interrupt because coming out of Penn Law School, my friends weren't interviewing at smaller firms like Lowenstein. And Lowenstein is based here in New Jersey? Lowenstein was originally based in New Jersey and we're now New York, Palo Alto, and New Jersey. And that was a big deal going to a firm that was in New Jersey from Penn. I wanted to ask you too, you said a few years in you realized you were addicted to work. Was that something that you recognized over time or did you wake up one morning or perhaps your uh, your wife said to you, honey, you're... I, I realized it fairly soon in, fairly early on in my career here because I was just working really hard and enjoying it and then when I looked back I put stuff together and my wife said to me you finished your thesis in college months early and pulled all-nighters to do it months before it was due because you were really really into it you and then I remembered in like fourth grade I pulled a couple of all-nighters because I was rewriting the advanced guide to Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> because I disagreed with a number of the basic tenets in the actual guidebook, but I pulled it all nighter and I Did your parents know about this? I lived upstairs with my aunt and my grandmother and my parents and my sister lived downstairs, so they might not have heard the typing. <laughs> so they might not have uh, we had this great, you know, multi generational row home in Brooklyn and and I, my sister is in a wheelchair, and as a result, I was upstairs away from my parents with my aunt and for a while my grandmother at a fairly young age. So there was definitely an ability to not be heard when, when that was useful to me, which was ended up, I think, being a good thing. And it sounds like the pattern of being pulled into things you're passionate about started very early. Very early and comes from my father. How? In what ways do you see? My father, and I see it in my son. My father was obsessed with opera, above and beyond everything, opera and 
classical music to a slightly lesser extent, and books. He was a voracious, tireless reader, and um, he and I could also see that opera had this healing effect on him, and he knew anecdote after anecdote about opera and about any opera singer from the last hundred years, and and they were fascinating stories. Occasionally. I was done listening to them, but they were fascinating yeah. stories, and he knew them about old baseball players, especially Yankees, and he knew them about, you know, and, and I relate to the world in a very similar way, and my father drove a cab and delivered pizza and sold galoshes out of the back of his station wagon, but mostly what I remember when I call him to mind, which is actually frequent, is my father working in the boiler room of our basement listening to um, George Jelinek on a little transistor radio um, at night addressing and stamping envelopes for a home improvements company in Brooklyn because his night job was to send out as many of these you know, direct mailing. Uh, he was just sticking labels on, writing labels for direct uh, direct mailing, and I guess they thought that having them handwritten would make them have a higher open rate. And it's interesting that I've actually worked with companies that spend a lot of time thinking about open rates on direct mail over email. Um, and and the opera, I think, made that stuff bearable for him because he was hiding in his little sanctuary underground. But I so clearly remember Jelinek's voice, and he made all of these recordings of, of Jelinek. Um, and, uh, wow. That is an amazing picture. What did it feel like to see your dad work so hard and find this respite, I guess, in, in opera? Yesterday, someone um, had an email exchange with someone who's doing a lung cancer run, and my father died of lung cancer in 94. Oh, wow. And it ended up with this exchange over email, which became quite personal about how I deeply am saddened by the fact that my children never got to know him and yeah. that whatever, whatever I've done professionally that my mom likes my dad would have gotten a kick out of and sort of you know, wasn't around to to see um, so what I think of is my father had a pretty hard life and he um, I saw him get mistreated a lot and I wanted to go to law school right out of college because I saw him get disrespected a lot as someone in the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. I saw him get disrespected by his family, by my mother's family. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I felt, uh, in, in a sense, I, I have tremendous respect for him. Have sympathy for him. It's so interesting that um, even within families, it's like I, I just hear this one story about your father, and I imagine that he was just this incredible, with this passion for baseball and opera and raising a kid like you, and yet it's those external things that often other people look at in terms of and that's why getting a law degree do you think had that not occurred do you think law would have been where you would have put your efforts I don't know I know that because I grew up in a home that was not financially stable some degree of safety net was really important to me I wanted to de-risk 
things. And I felt that having a professional degree would really de-risk. Um, so I'm, I believe that I could, you know, there are risks I could have taken. I, and I don't, reg I don't have regrets. I'm, there's a reason I've been working for this particular law firm since my summer associate stint in 1991. That's a long time by current standards. Um, but I'm sure that that was influential. And my mother um, worked at a, a large law firm where she was a non-lawyer, but um, she had a lot of respect for the people who worked there. When you look back at um, what, what's been useful for you as a lawyer, what are the things that, that are sort of key? And they may be things that someone taught you or they may have been things that really you figured out yourself, but what are the key components that you think are important for you in the work that you do? So my father never understood much about business, never knew much about business, and we never talked about finance or anything like that. But he did do a lot of, um, and my mother to an extent as well, there was close reading of things. And I spend a lot of time with my kids doing close what I what I think of as sort of close text analysis of song lyrics um, and, and and songs have this incredible associational value so we took a trip to Hawaii and we drove all over the place and we listened endlessly to the album The River which my wife adores and which I think is great and we talked about the stories and 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 what a given line means could you know could could take a that could be a fifteen minute conversation and we did that with Dylan songs and, and with, with other uh, with other things um, that comes from my father I think and it's a gift I didn't realize it was going to be a gift in later life and he had no idea he was training me but. It's a gift I'm trying to give to my children, and maybe they'll thank me for it later, and maybe, maybe they won't. But my goodness, that's helpful as a lawyer because you really think carefully about the spoken word because it's song lyrics, and you think carefully about the written word, and you analyze and analyze, and that's really valuable. And it's why I didn't... I didn't want to be a deal lawyer when I got out of school. I wanted to be a trial lawyer, which I'm really thankful that I saw the light on. It's a great job, but not for me. And one of my colleagues, my mentor when I was a summer associate, who's now my partner, said, here's a paragraph, sit down and read it, and just tell me what they're trying to do that they're not telling us. What do you think? And I thought, wow, all of these other summer associates are stapling court filings and I'm sitting and thinking about three sentences. That's a cool job. What I love about this story too is that the learning came through something you love, which is music, and by listening carefully and really playing with it and that it, it gave you a way of thinking about words and about language that you then can use in your daily work yeah and I think I think I, I think that also the sociology and anthropology was a really good foundation to layer in as well because seeing how people interact with one another is really important if you're trying to come up with a common set of goals so that you can get your objectives achieved with in a way that does as little damage to everyone else around the table, or just knowing how to work with founders or seeing the dynamic in a boardroom and telling someone, hey, just looking at that person, she's uncomfortable, that's gonna be an issue for you, maybe in six months, maybe in a year, can we talk about it? 
that's a skill. And had I gotten a degree in finance, I'm not sure that I would have picked up that skill. My students in that first year at Columbia would have probably gotten a better spreadsheet out of me, <laughs> but I might not have gotten to teach the class. You said that you went into this field thinking you were going to be a trial lawyer. What happened? When did you realize, this is not for me, I want to go in this other direction? There were a number of things that I wa wanted to do originally. One of them was I wanted to work in public interest and my first year of law school I did public interest work and I had a couple of experiences that dissuaded me from continuing along that path. I am so appreciative of the people who have the ability to do that on a full-time basis. It's hard, hard work. And I spent a lot of time doing intake, and it was a wonderful public law project in Philadelphia. I spent a lot of time doing intake, and what doing intake meant was people would call you and they'd have these stories that were so moving and compelling about what had happened to their child. And mostly I had to say, that does not fall within the mandates of our grant, and therefore we cannot undertake your representation, I'm really sorry. And I would then do what I could to guide them someplace else or to help them. And one person came in and her child's brain function had been completely devastated by malpractice. And I, we weren't supposed to touch this. And she just wanted a set of eyes on a settlement that she was being asked to sign and her lawyer was being compensated way above market as a piece of the settlement. And I didn't know much, but I knew that. I knew his percentage was off. It wasn't off so much that it was gonna be struck down by a court maybe, but it was off. And I knew what this kid's life was going to look like. I couldn't feel what it was gonna look like, but I, I had some glimpse into what it was gonna look like, especially having grown up in a, in a home with a disabled sibling. And I went to my boss and I said, I know this is not within our grant. I, we can't send this woman away. We, we gotta do something. Can, I, I really, I know you're busy. Can we just sit down with her? And we did. And we couldn't help her. We pointed out a couple of things. We explained stuff in a language that she could understand. And how, how could I do that? How could I, how could I, one of the reasons I went to law school was I feel like my parents, particularly with respect to my sister's medical condition, were on the receiving end. My parents received the short end of the stick by various systems in a whole lot of ways. And I wanted to go to law school so that my family and I would not be on the receiving end of short shrift. and. And I just felt like if I did that job, I'd spend so much of my time not helping. And then there was another event where, so the summer before law school, I was an overnight counselor at a camp for adults with profound retardation and autism. And I kept in touch with one of the families. And I went to um, take the camper out to dinner. Betsy and I took this guy out to dinner. And he was, he was great. And his family was great. And I asked how he was doing. His name was Andy, how, how Andy was doing. And they said, oh, you know, Andy was doing much better, but there was this class action lawsuit for people with mental illness. And they won all this money, including legal fees. And as a result, all the programming for people with retardation got cut because basically the government wasn't going to allocate more money for either group. So they took from one pocket oh. and shortchanged the people with retardation because they had this lawsuit to deal with for the people with mental illness. And I sat there mortified because guess who had worked on that lawsuit? Guess who had been in court when that lawsuit was decided and we were victorious? And I just said, you know, this is way more political and it's way more financially oriented than I had ever imagined. And I understood why people burned out. 
And I'm so glad that I had that opportunity to experience it during law school, including a grant from the Equal Justice Foundation at uh, U of Penn, which enabled me to do that over, uh, over the, my first summer. And, but I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do that. And I, do you wonder too, sometimes I ask this of, of doctors, I, I spoke with a doctor who works with um, kids with um, cancer, and he's an endocrinologist, and I said, how do you deal with the, the emotional piece of this? And he talked about how, for him, he wanted to work with patients that he could see over a long period of time, mm-hmm. and most of these kids survive. But I just I think about people who work in professions like public interest law, and how do you how do you learn how not to take it in so deeply and feel? Um, and it sounds like that's something you wrestled with. Oh, it's part of why I'm not there. I, in 2002, my wife and I started a charity. Called, which was originally called Hoopapalooza, and it's now called the Happy Foundation. And What a great name. Both of them, actually. They're terrible names. I'm terrible <laughs> at naming stuff, but it's okay. But the goal was I was invited to a number of things that were black tie or golf outing. I don't golf. Or tennis tournaments. Um, and I suck at tennis. For charity. And those are things that took me away from my kids, and I was looking for opportunities to do charitable work alongside my kids to raise empathetic, charitably inclined kids. And I wanted to give back. So we set up this charity to do that and to do work alongside our kids. And and it's been great fun, but we've given away a bunch of grants. We now have an executive director, so I'm less hands-on, which, I, which is bittersweet. And the executive director is terrific, but it's bittersweet. This was your baby. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Founderitis, and I set up a meeting to look at an emergency, a pediatric emergency room, and NICU in Newark, and then I arranged to have lunch with the CEO of a company that I represented afterwards, and I figured I would go to the NICU, the new pediatric ER that we were supporting, and I'd walk through and I'd talk to some docs, and then I'd hop over to lunch. And I did. And I got to lunch half an hour after I left the hospital. And I was crying like a toddler. And fortunately, that CEO, who was the fifth CEO, I represented this company through five CEOs. They went through CEOs like Spinal Tap, went through drummers. And oh, my God. He t- t- and they survived. They survived. They sold for about $100 million. And every new CEO, I had to explain why they should keep me as counsel instead of whoever it was that they had used for their last company. This guy, who was tough in the beginning, has become, this was probably 2005, 2004, 2004. He's become such a close friend. I was just emailing with him this morning, our wives and and we had dinner um, a couple weeks ago. And he's such a lovely guy, and he was at the event that you attended. and we talked no business that lunch, and we just talked about what I had seen at the hospital. I left lunch with a check, but... Um, <laughs> for, your, for your charity. Yes. Uh, but I promised myself that I would never put myself in a situation like that again. And so I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that. It's, I think it's a learn... I've asked people, how do you learn this? I'm not sure people really know how you learn how to have that, that separation or not bring all of this stuff home with you. Yes, and to be incredibly erudite and pretentious, that's an issue that they grappled with on Grey's Anatomy. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is good, <laughs> that at least it's in public and people talk about it. Right. But it's interesting, too, I think, it sounds like you made a choice in your own work because this is hard for you to not have to wrestle with that in the same way. And I may be... Uh, you know, I don't know enough about the kind of work. So what does a deal lawyer do? Other than chickening out of dealing with kids with cancer? <laughs> <laughs> no, other than chickening out, actually, in your, in your, it's not chickening out, but other than saying the political ramifications of a decision, like the decision that um, was made in favor of people with mental illness, which then meant that people with retardation didn't get 
you know, it sounds like that was a, a real break for you of recognizing, I want to do good, but I can't here because something else happens. Yeah, there's a degree of defeatism, of cowardice, of selling out. I mean, there are all of those I, things I, in, in that. It's funny, I don't see it that way, though. I see it more like what you said about you as a teenager. I see it more as recognition of there's so much I can do, and I can't do that here. Well, hopefully my children will look at at what I've done in life that way. That way. Um, what does a deal lawyer do? So, <laughs> but it's but it sounds like I mean, are you? And I I do just want to follow up because is it something that makes you uncomfortable that you made the choice that you did? Most of the time, no. I I feel like in a number of ways I've hit the lottery, and I think anyone who feels that way always has pangs of guilt about feeling that way and then you want to focus on how you ensure that your children don't take stuff for granted and so we've spent a lot of time um, thinking about that and executing on strategies for that and the charitable stuff is is part of that um but no, I, it's, I don't have a whole lot of regret, um, but it probably intensifies my admiration for people who do great things and for people who use positions of prominence. And, and I think a, a singer that I love, who I'm uh, getting to see live t- tomorrow night, Dar Williams, I think uses her... Um, her position of prominence to apprise people of issues that she thinks are important. And I think that there are opportunities in life to, um, to do that. And so maybe you try to weave some stuff in and maybe you, when you have a little bit of financial wherewithal and social network, maybe you start a charity. And maybe you get your kids involved in that to have a, an impact on them. Which is what you did. I mean, it's getting at similar issues, but from another vantage point. Rather than the professional, I'm going to do this for a living, it's, right. right, how do we get right. into it from another vantage right. point? But, but with a recognition that I'm nowhere near as good or empathetic or charitable a person as I think I should be, and I'm not as strategic about charitable stuff as I should be, and so I'm, I, I'm copping out by calling myself a work in process on that front. I think we all are. <laughs> All right, so now let's get back to the whole idea of a deal lawyer, which for a lot, a lot of people, I know there's so many different ways of being a lawyer, and I think for many people they have no clue as to what all these different things mean. Um, so one of the things that I particularly liked about deal lawyer versus trial lawyer is in deal lawyer you're putting stuff together. And in trial lawyer, you're taking stuff apart to be overly simplistic mm-hmm. about it. And I like the idea of being able to put things together and build. And often, particularly in venture and angel and early stage and growth stage, you're actually involved in job creation. I know politicians talk about how many jobs they're going to create, and then they have all this wacky math that no one understands. Right. But when you participate in the seed financing of a company as a lawyer or as an investor, not as the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur is doing something really special, you're playing a role in, you know, there's a company called AppNexus where I was a seed investor and I'm outside counsel. They have 200 and some odd employees, mostly in New York now. a company like Birchbox, a company like Yext, which has 200-plus employees in New York, and I'm one of two angels who participated in that first round of financing, or Live Intent, which is another great company. You, you get to participate in building something, and that, with the right entrepreneur, that grows into something really pretty special. So that's kind of cool. There are hundreds of engineers who wouldn't be working in New York if early stage financing had not been provided to these inspiring founders. 
So one thing that we do as deal lawyers is help the founder or the investor figure out how to work together within the framework of where the market is and understand, because when founders look at term sheets, I'm not gonna say founders look at deal documents because a lot of them don't. When founders look at term sheets, there are three things that they say kill them. I can't possibly live with this. How can I live with this? Well, I can now say, been here for 20 years in the same place doing this stuff and actually you can live with it because here's how it plays out. In the edge case, here's what happens as well. Here's how to avoid the edge case. And by the way, if you don't trust the investor, don't do it. And because I've known that investor for 10 years or six years or three years, here's some inside scoop I can give you on that investor, which is why I do as many events. It's one of the reasons I do as many events as I do because I need to know who those people are so that I can help entrepreneurs pick the right investor with whom they'll have some sort of cultural fit. I'm, I'm fascinated that you say that because at the event that I attended where you had venture capitalists, you had entrepreneurs, you had a lot of other people there too, a number of people, mostly the VCs on the panel, talked about this process of um, it's like matchmaking and they talked about it like dating. You know, how as an entrepreneur can you know whether this VC is the right person for you? And what I found out, found fascinating was people talked about it like dating, but there was very little conversation about what makes a great relationship and how do you figure out what those pieces are? Because people are coming to the table. It also it made me think a lot about dating. It's like, okay, here are the guys with the money and here are the, I mean, it, not to make it too gendered, but here are the entrepreneurs who are like, the women with the babies, and they're coming together, and they have to figure out how do they make a family that works. Wow, that's awful. I know it's but really awful, but it can't, it you can't do that. It felt that way. <laughs> it felt that way too. So I mean, I, in a very nineteen fifties yeah, way of and, and and I don't like dating analogies for venture. I'm not sure what I like dating analogies for, but <laughs> and dating is such so fraught anyway. But that I think that's why the analogy is made because it feels like a fraught process. So I, I'm a fan of, of teachable moments. And in my class at Columbia a number of years ago, we had three companies come in and present, and the students were going to do their group project about these three companies. And they were companies that I had backed as an angel or was in the process of closing a financing for. And I had represented to the students that they were financeable companies, at least by someone as dumb as I am. And one of the CEOs, a woman that I had invested in, um, called me the day before and said, I feel terrible. My uncle passed away. The funeral is tomorrow. And if you want me to honor my commitment to you, I will. And she was also a friend. And I said, I could never ask you in a million years to honor your Don't You're uninvited. You can't come to class. But let me use your deck because the students already you know, know that your company is one of the three companies and I'll just use your deck. And she said, okay, I'm really sorry. And I said, it's crazy, right? And I got up when it was her turn to present and I said, she can't be here. I'm gonna walk through her deck. I'm an angel and I'll tell you why I invested. Don't hold a poor presentation against the company. And after all the presentations and the CEOs had left, I asked the students what they thought. And one of them said, I would never finance her company. And I said, okay, why? He said, she blew off her investor pitch. And a couple of students got angry. And I said, you know, we took both sides and we talked about it. And I said, all right, guys, what's the takeaway? And someone said, the takeaway is he's a jerk. And I said, no, no. The takeaway is that some of you culturally are going to align with him and say she should have taken the investor pitch and blown off the funeral. And if you don't and you find out that that's who your investor is, do not do a deal with that person. You are not a good fit. I would never want someone to blow off a funeral for an investor meeting. That's me. 
culturally, and we should not do a deal together. But all, you, all you other people, you guys should do deals together. And you're fortunate that you've had that experience that you now know like this. Right, that this is the wrong fit. Correct. How, as someone who works with people on both sides, do you help them without that kind of a stark, all right, this doesn't work for me, or of course she took this time off because it was her uncle. Right. How do you help people? We can't manufacture a death in every deal. Yeah, you try not to, I would hope. You probably would end up in different places if that's what you did. But how do you, how do you help people understand culturally that this is the right or the wrong match? You, you were part of it. I, one of the things that we do is we put together events, dinners, uh, first growth, Angel Vine, um, the Venture Crush New York that's going on next week where we have almost 500 people confirmed. At those events, people are not pitching, but they're getting to know and they're getting to spend time and they're getting to meet other people who know and they're developing and expanding their networks and we're enabling them to get to know in a low risk environment the people with whom they might do business. So that's one way. It's interesting. It, it makes me think of, I mean, that's what all the charitable events in New York are all about, too, in, in a different kind of world. But there are those big charity dinners where you go mostly so you can schmooze with people that one day you might be doing business with as a way of getting to know them through a shared interest, which is interesting, too. Yeah. And by the way, for me, it's great because then I get more data points because now that CEO who saw me cry at lunch, he's now been to a bunch of these events. I've introduced him to a number of venture investors right after he sold his company, introduced him to a whole bunch of venture investors. So he now has all this great data on all these people that I know. So I'm, I'm constantly collecting data, and that data arises from social interactions. Do you see this as an essential piece of what you do as, you know, I think people may have an idea of lawyers as people who analyze, as you say, of people who see patterns, but this role as someone who brings people together um, in, as you say, a low-risk environment, is that a key piece of your work? That I'm Julie McCoy, the ship's cruise director from, <laughs> from Love Boat? Yes. Although the food wasn't quite as good as I can imagine it was. And lovely. I don't look anything like Lauren Tews. I think that's who it was. <laughs> I don't know who it was, but I can picture her. Um, sadly, I'm more confident of that answer than I am about Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> it's humiliating. Uh, I don't see it as a key piece of lawyering. I see it as a key piece of what we as a group are doing, because I think we are different. And I see it as a key piece of what I'm doing, and I enjoy it. And I think it benefits the companies I represent, the investors I represent, the companies that I have backed financially as a small angel in a whole bunch of different companies, the students that I teach at Columbia. I, I just had someone flip me a resume and say, my dream job is at Company X. I flipped it to Company X saying, it's a bright guy, don't know him that well, but you know if it works for you. And they wrote back, this is a great resume, we're gonna to talk to this guy. Mm. And it's because I have these po touch points. If I sat in my office doing documents all day, I wouldn't have those touch points. It's also an investment of your time and of resources from your firm. So is this something that was, was it, what was it like to convince the firm that this is something you should be doing? And it's an enormous investment of time away from family, mm. which I think about a lot. If you think about why someone stays in any job for 20 years, it's because they found an environment that's incredibly supportive of what they want to do, or because they're unemployable elsewhere, or <laughs> a blend of the two, as it's probably in, yeah. in my case. When I decided that I wanted to start our group um, in the late mid to late 90s, I went 
to the chairman of the corporate department here, uh, Peter Ehrenberg, who's been an amazing mentor and friend. And I told him, and, and he said, you know, you should talk to, to Michael Rodberg, our then managing partner. And I went to our managing partner's office, and I said, I'd like to start a group. And he said, do you have a business plan? And I said, no. And he said, okay, see ya. And <laughs> I'm not sure that he expected me to come back. I mean, we didn't really know each other all that well. I was still relatively junior. And I came back with a business plan, and he was surprised to see me, and he said, fine, you're now a group. You don't have a budget, but if you want to be a group, you're a group. So it was completely meaningless. But then when revenue started flowing in shortly thereafter, and I asked if we could spend a little bit of money, it was okay. And then I asked if we could spend more money as more money was coming in, and that was okay too. So the firm has, as a platform for me, been so entrepreneurial and so supportive that at some point I stopped I used to compartmentalize and say okay I could do business social stuff after 6:30 at night but I can't do I can't think about or work on cuz and now I realize that they're too intertwined and so I can't compartmentalize and I think the firm realizes that as well and has been really supportive of it if and you may get approached by young lawyers all the time. If a young lawyer came to you and said, how do I now, in 2012, create a career for myself the way that you did for you? What would you, what would you recommend? Find the best people is the most basic starting point. When my father was dying of cancer, the people here were so amazingly supportive and let me take as much time as I needed to be with him. And I had this incredible gift of being with him six days a week when he was in the hospital. Wow. And there's such loyalty engendered by that that I can't even begin to describe it. And so how could it be surprising that they were supportive of all this other stuff that I wanted to do? So the first thing is it's about the people. And I had an experience where I was at, a, at the printer working on an IPO in 94, and the partner said to me at dinner time, I'm going to pull the all-nighter. You, you go and be with your dad and spend the night at a hotel right next to the hospital, have breakfast with him, come back after breakfast. And I have a friend at another law firm who, who was, and we found out years later, we had the identical fact pattern. And his boss said, really need you tonight. See ya. You're sticking around. I'm going home. And, and this friend's father was dying also. Yeah. And, it ha and, and that would happen on a recurring basis. Um, so the culture of the organization really matters. The, the people um, really matter. That's the first thing. Because you can't, you know, it's like the Maslowian hierarchy of needs, right? You can't, you can't expect to do anything interesting if you're sort of fighting for food and shelter. Right. And you need shoes, yeah. 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 Um, and then I think try a bunch of different things and figure out what excites you. Because if you don't feel excited or passionate about what you're doing, it will show and it's not going to help anybody. And you don't have to feel passionate about lawyering. You don't have to you don't have to make this job something tremendously fulfilling. There's a there's nothing wrong with having a day job at which you slice tomatoes so that you can go home and be with your family. My father sliced tomatoes, for instance, you know, seven, seven days a week so that he could do stuff with his family. And my mother worked really, really hard and went back to school at night. And there's no, there's no rule that says that you have to get a lot out of this job. Um, if you choose that path, though, I think you've got to feel a spark. And if you don't feel it, and if you don't feel it in law, then maybe it's elsewhere and you've got to figure out your risk tolerance. Ed Zimmerman. 
What I love about his story is how he's figured out who he is and learned to use his gifts. You can read more about Ed Zimmerman on his blog. There's a link on the Pursuit of Spark website. And in this conversation, we didn't have a chance to talk about one of his abiding passions, wine. And that's for another day. Thank you so much for listening to Pursuit of Spark. I'd love to hear what you think. And please let me know if you have suggestions for someone I should talk to about creative approaches to the challenges and pleasures of work. Next time, a conversation with the photographer Joel Meyerowitz and the writer Maggie Barrett, who have just finished a collaboration on a book about Provence. This is Pursuit of Spark. I'm Julie Burstein. Till next time.